This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, here we are back in the Plucked Chicken studio, and uh, we are continuing with our study of the gospel according to St. John. Uh, We've gotten through the discourse with Nicodemus, and we're uh, resuming our conversation uh, with uh, verse 22 of chapter 3. And actually, I think having somebody read it out to the end would be a a good idea. And Pastor uh, Okri, you've got such a wonderfully uh, mellifluous voice that we would love to hear you do it. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So we've got a lot of uh, imagery and verbiage from early on uh, in the prologue, but uh, it would be probably uh, worthwhile to begin with uh, just this uh, bridegroom and uh, and best man uh, imagery and kind of work back into the text from that. Um, So who is, you know, as we look at this, uh, just to kind of lay out the real basics for our readers, who is the bridegroom and who is the best man? Well, clearly here the bridegroom is Jesus uh, and the one he's pointing to and bearing witness to, and he himself is the best man. So, and so he himself is John the baptizer. Right. Yeah. Yep. So his joy all along has been uh, to proclaim the one who is coming into the world. And um, when he sees him, he, uh, has, he, has, he has great joy. Yeah. And it's actually a really powerful picture to me because he has a role to play in this grand scheme of things he in an important role but he does not have the spotlight and we've seen plenty of movies and things where someone tries to steal the spotlight at a wedding and we know how uh, what would you say gauche and uh, and rude and and everything it is and he he knows his role my role is an important one but it is not the spotlight role that is pre- preserved for Christ himself yeah, and there's there's a real there's also you know all of us have been involved in weddings at some point or another, and you know when it's somebody that you uh, enjoy and care for, you really it's really a great day for the person who is not getting married, uh, to see to see that your good friend or your brother or whoever it might be is is the one getting married, and that's the that's the attitude of John. I think there's an application here in contemporary Christianity, don't you, with the spotlight stealing megachurch pastors right well we talk about that all the time and and some of our our podcasts uh, critiquing some of these things is that they want to take they want to take christ and make him the bridegroom or that make him the um the best man look at how jesus is shining the light on me right right so that i can be i must increase and he must decrease right well let's go back and then let's go forward here for just a second 
one recalls how this really mysterious passage in Exodus where Zipporah, the wife of Moses, circumcises their son, then takes the severed foreskin, comes up to Moses, throws it at him or what have you, something about his feet or something like this, whether that's a euphemism for his for his own genitalia. Yeah. And says, you're a, bl- you're a bridegroom of blood for me. It's, it's a very odd text. I mean, everybody reads that just kind of, you know, puts on the brakes and says, what in the world? And so here you have the the man that God is going to use to deliver the people of Israel, and God's going to kill him. And here you've got circumcision, you've got this sacrament, as we would say, and you've got this word bridegroom. And now, for the very first time in John, you see the word bridegroom. You think about Moses, you think about Jesus. God's going to kill him. He's going to deliver the people. That that is an excellent uh, pickup and and uh, pickup on an echo, right? Uh, yeah, and and his increase, right? Again, so so there's there's all this deep irony written into the kind of elevation words in the gospel of according to Saint John, glory, you know, raise up, lift up. Uh, he must increase, right? Well, it's all shades off to the cross, right? And then I would say too, what is the hermeneutical principle? Uh, like whenever you see a word for the very first time, isn't there a hapax legomenon? It's a it's a single occurrence of a term. Okay, single. So a hapax legomenon is 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 a term that occurs only once in all of uh, corpus. Okay, so this wouldn't be it because we we pick up on bridegroom again. Yes, but this is the very first time that it's mentioned, and it is quote unquote a theme that is carried throughout John's gospel account. That is that is a very astute observation, and we actually had a wedding earlier of of all the darn things. Right. So then, okay. So you think you think back to this bridegroom of blood. Here's Jesus, whose whose blood is going to be shed. Then you think forward, and you think going off of what you're talking about with this bridegroom. You know the the fact that, and I, I think you're going to get to this. You were talking about who's the best man, who's the bridegroom, who's the br- best man. Well, who's the bride? Well, we all know who the bride is. The church. Uh, the church. And so there's this betrothal that has taken place, or really is taking place, uh, at least at this point in, in John's narrative, between the bridegroom and the church. I, I just want to finish with this point, and, and it touches on your application point. Most evangelicals, they don't see the church as being as important as it truly is. It's their relationship with Jesus. It's the me and Jesus thing. Yeah. That takes precedence over the church. Right. Which is sad because it's so not biblical. I mean, even Luther will talk about how, of course, I can't believe for another person, but our faith is always lived out corporately, and the scripture is just so clear about that. I want to, this is fascinating to me. You've kind of cracked my head open like an egg uh, because that, is a, that, that Zipporah text is a very interesting one. It dawns on me that we're talking about bridegrooms in both contexts, and, and then we have circumcision on the one hand, and let's not forget that the context of this is a baptismal text. And so we see a circumcision baptism connection, 
And and we and I, I was thinking about this. God is going to kill Moses, but he relents in the promise established in the covenant. And again, or the death we die in baptism is the death of Christ. And and so we are spared from death, so that rightfully as Christians, uh, we I mean, that's that's incredibly profound. And and John obviously saw a, a connection between circumcision and baptism and the establishment of the of the the bride and the bridegroom. Yeah, there's so and and you know just to just to tack on to what you've said. Um, look at what John says. He says, "My joy is fulfilled." Right. So we get this idea of fulfillment, but but there's something there's something lurking here in Greek that that a, that an English hearer can't pick up. Charis is grace. When grace is shown to you, what do you have? You have chara, which is joy. joy. I mean, they are etym- they are clearly etymologically related. When you become the object of the grace of God, you are filled with a with the joy that passes all understanding, and that's an important thing. I'm just going to add one last thing to this. Uh, this begins with a controversy over cleansing, which is very very interesting. So John is the one who points to the capital C cleanser, Jesus Christ. And as John later in his epistle, the first epistle, reflects upon this, this is what he says. This is John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to... Cleanse us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, the connection with baptism here. And you know, if you read a little bit, a little bit earlier, this is just John chapter one verse eight. He's already brought up the whole business about joy, and the joy is in the fellowship of the believer with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and with the whole church on earth. Again, the mention of the triune name, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is absolutely a reflection of baptism. So this is very rich. I, Pastor Kearns, I would agree with Pastor Oakry. It's like you put an egg on my head and smashed it. Well, uh, it's my spiritual gift. If you go back to the beginning portion of what Pastor Oakry read, I mean, to touch on what both of you said, baptizing is mentioned four times. Right. right. How can you miss this? Right. And, and you're exactly right. And and how could you then miss that the Nicodemus discourse is actually about baptism? It's like, it's like okay, he's been talking about it here, and now here we get a real, for instance, who is the real cleanser? Jesus is. And he baptizes with water and spirit. Well, and on that, in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we know from the very first verse of chapter 4 that Jesus was not baptizing, but he entrusted this to his disciples. So you have John the Baptist baptizing in a certain area, and you've got Jesus baptizing in another area. The point I wanted to make is, actually, Jesus was baptizing. Even though he was using the hands and the mouth of his own disciples. Exactly. Right, right. Right, that's yeah. awesome. That's that's really really good. Yeah. And the, and the Bible clearly sees no distinction in that. It's Jesus baptizing, even though it's using the disciples to accomplish. So it. let's drive this home for for those who are listening. When you were baptized by Pastor Jacobson, Pastor Stodiker, uh, Pastor Lang, Pastor Kearns, Pastor Bruss, 
Who was doing the baptizing? Jesus was. Jesus was. And this is what makes me have a conniption fit, to think that we all, or the three of us, have heard, because I've made you listen to them, many, many sermons of guys who are talking how baptism really means nothing. It's just a symbolic act where it just represents, as you would say, Pastor Bruss, that you're on Team Jesus. How how can one read the biblical text and just dive a little bit deeper than just skin deep and not see how vital this is to salvation? Good. And, and, you know, in, in those schemas that you're talking about, those evangelical schemas, the action, ironically, is on the part of the one being baptized. This is how they've got it like how the geography of this whole thing works in their heads. And uh, here it couldn't be any more clear than that the disciples baptize, and it's really Jesus baptizing. So what do you make of the notice in verse 23? Is it just an incidental notice uh, that, that there was much water at Ainon at the time? Well, it reminds me, at least on a surface level, that this is a dry land, and that water was hard to come by. Uh, and we certainly see, uh, especially in the early church, I always, I think this always draws us into discussions about the, the mode of baptism, that there were places where it was hard to find water. And same thing out in the frontier of the United States, right? Uh, we're going to pour water in this context because we don't have an easy river to get to. And certainly they would have experienced that as well. So he had to go to a place where there was water. It's not like they could just turn on the spigot. But interestingly, Jesus didn't. It says that he went into the Judean countryside. This is the wilderness where the wadis run dry. And yet, uh, the baptism that Jesus is performing is, ironically, creating this huge following. And, his, and to the point that the disciples of John are saying, what is going on here? Um, the point being, I think this does go to mode in a sense, um, and, it, and more than that, it goes to the efficacy of the word joined to baptism. It's not the amount of water. It is who's doing the baptizing, Jesus, through his word. Believe me, I've heard many a sermon in the Southern Baptist world, as Pastor Oakry points out, that is indicating, oh, you see, this means you've got to be dunked. Like the mode is the most important thing because there's much water. Jesus wouldn't have gone to something uh, that had little water. He would have gone to a place that had a lot of water because you had to get the whole body in there and dunk them. But of course, this is saying that's not what happened. Of course. Yeah. 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 And and it is interesting uh, because then it, it shows that we're not going to put limits on the word. The word's not going to be limited. Like we, we don't have any water here, so obviously we can't have a church, right? No, we're gonna we're gonna get what water we can, and we're gonna make the church happen in this place with the word and this little amount of water. And I think that's important that that it was, and it's it's very clear through the the unpacking of the birth of the church throughout the New Testament. Clearly, they were unhindered by water sources, right? Mm-hmm. It would have been. And that would have been much more important if the mode was the thing. I feel like the following construction here, starting at verse 25, is intriguing to me because it seems like there's a discussion about purification, and then they come to John, and they don't ask a question that seems to be about purification. And so you kind of have to hold those two things together. And I, what I'm reading here is as they come to him and they say, well, 
this one you pointed to, uh, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And I think their question is, does your baptism work, John? Is your baptism a purifying baptism or is this Jesus baptism the purifying baptism? And that seems to be the driving force behind this argument and then the question. It's not just uh, sour grapes or, or hurt feelings. Like, why, why, why is our shirt shrinking while his is growing? Good. Based upon that, Pastor Oakry, hasn't John already said what Jesus' baptism was going to do? He has. And his immediate response to them is, look, guys, I told you I'm not the Christ. <laughs> right. And right. and finally, I, I see him putting himself in maybe not exactly the shoes of the disciples. He's not a learner. He's a precursor. But he's saying, my baptism is, is a baptism that's only as efficacious as Christ is efficacious, right? He's not pitting himself against Jesus. And that's the critical piece here. He's not saying, well, it's either my way or Jesus' way. He's saying, I'm this guy's servant, and he has to increase that I must decrease, uh, or I must decrease that he may increase. And of course, the same thing is true with the disciples, right? The disciples don't walk around being like, look at the baptism I'm bringing you, right? They say, this is the baptism of Jesus, and (laughs) come and receive uh, the purification, the cleansing of sins that you need. Good. Can I just make another notice? Uh, verse 27, could somebody read that uh, Read that in English? Because I, I, I can't remember how it got translated. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. All right. This is So in, in the Greek text, it says an anthropos. This is that Adam theology that, that is lurking in the gospel according to St. John. Um, so I read that and I think, oh, this is this is highly restorative. Uh, so this is Adam getting put back into the condition that he was supposed to have been in in the first place. The Imago Dei. Exactly. Through baptism. Right. And, and this is clearly a recapitulation of what had been said to Nicodemus. I mean, there's a reason why these two pieces are put right next to each other, because it's it's basically restating what he said to Nicodemus that confused him. Good. And, and it's exactly what Nicodemus says in uh, 3, 4. Nicodemus says to him, how can a anthropos be born when he's old? How can Adam be born when he's old? Yeah. He was certainly old, too. Yeah. <laughs> And it and it's almost baptism, a thousand but, years old. But he's but he's drowned. He's drowned, and a new man is is created. So backing up just before that, and this is a smaller point. We've made mention before how when Jesus is called Rabbi, it was because he was educated in the schools for this vocation. Well, they called John the same. A lot of times in, I wouldn't even say the evangelical world is everything is um, Jesus is just kind of, he just decides to do this on his own. And then John the Baptist, for sure, based on what he wears and what he eats and how he lives, his aesthetic lifestyle, you know, you just kind of just kind of decide to do it. And you see this all the time in uh, the evangelical world in particular, where guys just, you know, the, in uh, college they start being a youth pastor and then they get a little bit more street cred and then all of a sudden they're a pastor. Never open a book, never any formal training whatsoever. They just decide. Is, isn't that part of the lie of the primitive church? This idea that 
that what we have, to, so when you think of sort of denominational churches, right, with the traditions that have developed and all that sort of stuff, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, people say, oh, you know, look at all the layers upon layers upon layers of stuff that you guys have added. It's clearly all human invention. We're going to do it the real way. We're going to do it the primitive way. We're going to sit on bean bags in the living room, strumming a gu- guitar, and uh, and you know, um, one of us, Joe, will become a you know he'll he'll preach. He's a good speaker. Yeah, he's a good speaker. And he's got those shoes. What were those shoes called? That Echo of- Echo Walkers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. The, you know, the ones that the hippies used to wear. Birkenstock? Oh, Birkenstock. No, 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 no. That's got two desert, straps. Desert boots? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Never mind. Flip, flippy floppy? No, the, the ones where you stick your big toe. It's got it's got like a thing around your big toe, and then you kind of, it looks like straps going around. Oh, like Roman sandals? Kind of like that. Yeah. There wasn't a name for it? I don't know. Roman, <laughs> Roman, Roman, Roman sandals? <laughs> what were those moccasins that came up to the bottom of your knee that the hoods used to wear back in the day? Do you remember those? Mucklucks? Mucklucks? Is that what they're called? I don't know. I don't know. Never mind. Go ahead. (laughs) Lord have mercy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just cracked my head open with that. I I understand. I understand. I'm sorry. But but I think the point is well taken that Pastor Kearns is making that to imagine some differences between today and the, the world of the Bible is not incorrect at all. However, to think that the differences are so great that not, that there are no touch points whatsoever is is to make a huge mistake and this is this is one of those places where the huge mistake is made and and you end up warping christianity in a fundamental way right i mean it's the same thing with uh, guys who say well the disciples didn't go to seminary why do right. i need to go right. to seminary when they were called disciples and literally spent a seminary program with Jesus. It always, I mean, it's 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 hilarious to me that they just completely ignore that whole piece of the puzzle. Like they just woke up and were like, "Well, we're just going to talk to people about Jesus." They, I didn't learn anything from him with the with the years I spent with him. <laughs> I'm just yeah. I'm just going, of of course. And and then you have the special call of Paul, who was this important piece. He was immersed even more than the disciples could have been in their brief discipleship. He was immersed in uh, Scripture in a powerful way that made him the perfect person to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But who did St. Paul go to to be instructed by? He went to Jesus' disciples. Yeah, second gen. Second gen. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, Ananias. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so— the point is, right. is that he still, even with all of his that was intellectual his, that prowess, was his colloquy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. I always want to be careful. It isn't, it isn't your seminary education that makes you a pastor. It is the call. But there's a reason why we value a seminary education because, man, you don't want a, a person who can fall into the traps and pitfalls of false teaching teaching you. Correct. And what we're seeing here is that. That seminary education, you know, it's taken a different form. You sit in a classroom, but is a biblical thing. This is not, it's not abiblical to go to the seminary. It's actually very biblical. Every, every one of the people we're talking about went to seminary in some way or another. Yeah. And, it, and it reminds me of that language of the seminary seedbed, right? It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a place where the seeds are planted and grow. And, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it doesn't have to take the, the form that we see it today, but... 
that education is critical and you don't that's how that's what the early church is built upon i want to talk about a, another kind of warping um in the terminology in in evangelicaldom and it, look the reason we're mentioning this isn't because we want to turn these guys into a whipping boy but because our people are immersed in this this is the kind of language about christianity that everybody's aware of because the evangelicals have done a great job filling the airwaves is the word witness witness and testimony okay so it's the same word martyreo look at every single instance of where john the baptizer witnesses he doesn't tell his own story he tells the story of jesus the self-aggrandizing evangelical pastor though tells whose story his own his own again it's the best man getting up and and talking while the vows are being made or something like that <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean exactly. it, and it's yeah. and, and you see how yeah. how inappropriate it is but it it sounds right to our sinful ears because we do want this the sinful self wants the spotlight and so it's like well yeah jesus jesus is there just to shine the spotlight on you and it's like no he's not everything in our life in christ is that he would increase and we decrease right that's our that's our repentance and our restoration in him but i think that's a critical conclusion to this text is that i mean there's a there's a really current application for this because our people are casting about thinking how do i know that god is god and that i'm saved and all of these things and and this is why we point unerringly to your baptism because it's that's the place where it stops being about you and starts being unerringly about christ and like quit quit pretending like you have to steal the limelight from him all of the the fruit producing all of the witness bearing all of those things right and and you've run into people all the time coming with that huge burden on them, right? I'm not bearing fruit. I'm not witnessing. I'm not doing the things I know I ought to be doing that the airwaves are telling me I need to be doing. And we just say, you're baptized. And John's satisfied to say, you want to talk about purification? There's Jesus. There's your purification. He doesn't point at himself. He doesn't point at the person. He says, look at Jesus. There's purification. There's cleansing. And that's where you finally find that wonderful rest, that peace that passes all understanding, right? Because you're like, oh, man, I'm, I don't have to be doing the doing because Christ has done the doing for me. And it's really not about your better life now either. Uh, John, the writer, makes a very interesting notice that John, had, John the baptizer had not yet been tossed into prison. Everybody knows that. Everybody in the Christian community knows that John the Baptist got tossed into prison, got his head taken off. And that's the trajectory for John's life. This is how he decreases and Christ increases. Even here, you see a, a subtle, you see a thing that could be a painful thing for John. His ministry is actively diminishing. And we run into that all the time. Like It seems like I'm doing less and less. But in faith, looking to Christ, John sees that what is happening is a very good thing. We love to play the numbers games in our churches. And here's John with a shrinking church saying, this is a God-pleasing thing. And man, good luck, good luck selling that in the evangelical world. Yeah, really. You know, and with John the Baptist here, you've got, there's no doubt that this is his swan song. As he does so, it's like, it's like all the pieces for him have finally come together. And it's okay that his congregation is diminishing. Because what's he got to look forward to? 
eternal life, the restoration of all things, the restored Amago Dei in himself. And the great congregation in heaven, right? The, yeah, the yeah. church the church triumphant. I don't know. This is this whole idea of looking beyond the present circumstances, I mean, which is so difficult for us all to do. We're earthy. We, yeah. we want to be tied down to the concerns of this world. We want to be concerned with, Augustine again, the city of man. And it's looking to the city of God and all that entails there. That's, that's really good. One of my teachers always said, subspecie aeternitatis, uh, uh, under the view of eternity, right? So, so something bad happens to you, you're down in the dumps, and the comment is subspecie aeternitatis. Just view this in, in, in view of eternity, and what, what does it really matter? I think it is important to note here, though, that even though John had that view, he also struggled. And, and it's important because you have that scene uh, in Matthew, where he reaches out to Jesus when he is in prison, and he says, clearly, things haven't quite worked out the way I thought they would. Are you truly him? And he has that doubt. Or should we be looking for another? Yeah. And and Jesus is wonderful, because Jesus isn't like, you idiot, right? I'm done with you, John. We're constantly in this space of the of the man with the demoniac son. I believe. Help my unbelief. John is crying out to Jesus. I believe help my unbelief. And that is this paradoxical tension we're constantly under, that while we aspire to see that vision of heaven that Stephen had as he was being stoned, we also sometimes are just, we can only see the earthy and we wonder. And God gives us a little space for that. I mean, the Psalms are full of that, right? And I think that's so precious for us. It's not an excuse for unbelief. It's an excuse for greater belief, right? Where do we go with that? We come to the cross and we say, Lord, I need to know. And he says, I died for this too. And that's so powerful. And that's what lifts us up out of that mire. I think about our context, our, our two contexts. So uh, down here in the southern part of Topeka, we deal with uh, the competition of, of uh, Fellowship Bible Church largely. And up in your context, you've got Northland Christian Church. And, um, you know, it, it, it's like this constant drip, drip, drip. And as soon as you think the dripping has stopped and you get comfortable with it, well, there's another drip. The, the, the interesting thing, and I, maybe I've been responding to this all along in the wrong way. Uh, when somebody uh, calls, you, calls you up or you reach out to them because you're aware of the fact that they've, you know, trailed off in this direction... And the, the, the idea is, well, you know, over, this is what I see going on at, at your congregation. It's, it's kind of, eh, you know, meh, it's mech. It's, it's kind of like John being thrown in prison. But the response of Jesus is a loving response. And what he does is he directs their eyes, John's eyes, to the objective facts of the gospel. Wouldn't it be interesting to respond like this? Yes, but... Children are being baptized. People are hearing that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. And Jesus himself is coming to the altar with his body and blood to forgive your sins. And just leave it at that. That's, all, that's the only answer we can give. Word and sacrament. Right. But most people, Pastor Bross, are looking for a church that's alive. They are. Is, are they not? I mean, this is what, you know, is, yes. was told to me just a couple of days ago. Really? Know? Oh, yeah. Really? Well... You just want to like suck what that means out of their brain because right. they can't communicate it to you. They have no right. idea. They just they want to they want to feel they want to feel bubbles. Yeah, they're enthusiasts. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Being alive means feeling bubbles, right? 
But this is, I mean, this is my point. A marionette flopping around looks alive and very active. It's dead. A person sleeping doesn't look alive, but they're more alive than the marionette. You've got to be real careful about where you locate life. And that's why we are very carefully locate life in word and sacrament. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that even though John and Jesus grew up in different areas, so they went to most likely two different rabbinical schools. I think it's interesting that the curriculum was the same, most likely in both, you know, because they, they really travel a lot in Isaiah when they're communicating with one another. And there's no doubt that Jesus, when he came to Jerusalem, he and his family would stay with John and his mom and dad. And, you know, it was a very uh, festive occasion. He's coming, what, five times a year to Jerusalem for sure, three times mandatory, and then the other two. Well, Jesus is in a very pious home. So the interactions between he and John would have been for years you just see this sometimes where it's not until John realizes he's the Messiah, like that's that's when he met him, when he came to the waters to be baptized. That's what people think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that he never knew who he was. Well, should we continue on? Uh, are there any further comments on this very interesting chunk? Well, I, I just wanted to point out this one little thing. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So as you were saying earlier, the best man, the friend of the bridegroom is John. Well, he hears his voice. Right? Faith cometh by what? Hearing. Right. Yeah. And that is important because he is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, but he's saying now... It's time for my voice to be silent, which reminds me, of course, of the opening of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And once the son shows up, once the groom shows up, you shut up and you listen to him. Amen. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. All bears witness to what has been seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, to this point, I think it's really interesting that you have uh, the church, if I'm not mistaken, the early church, what have you, church fathers, who all ascribe this to John the Baptist. But you've got later commentators who would say, that this is St. John coming in here, just like we argued with John 3.16 and the like. Yeah, so what do your red-letter versions do? Well, this is a red-letter version I have, and it's black. It is black, so, yeah. so it's, it's assigning it to John, the writer. 
Yeah, I have closed quotes at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of verse 30. Mm -hmm. And so this is clearly marked as commentary by the writer. But as we know, the original didn't have those. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is an editorial choice to delineate this as John speaking, John, the, the gospel writer speaking instead of John the Baptist speaking. And no offense, but what do red letters have to do with that? I mean, oh, you're right. You're right. No, no, no. You're you're totally right. Yeah, no, no you're totally right. Yep. <laughs> they have nothing to do with it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter really. I think it matters a little bit because this is a powerful witness bearing by John the Baptist. He is saying what he what he see, has seen and known, and just as you say, he's not pointing to himself. He's pointing at Jesus, and this really is him elaborating on what it means that he must increase but i must decrease right it's his elaboration or it's again john breaking into the narrative and it being his further explanation whether it's john the baptizer talking or john the evangelist talking here um, let's assume it's a commentary on what has come before just just, uh maybe maybe all of chapter three almost you could say uh, you know, it's the Nicodemus thing. It's the it's the quandary of John's disciples about purification. How does this offer uh, suitable commentary to to that? Because it it doesn't just plop. John just doesn't plop it in there as a kind of you know. Now I'd like to reflect on this. Right. Well, you have a a restatement of that above imagery, and of course, saying you must be born from above, and. All of a sudden, he who comes from above, and so you're receiving you're receiving the one coming from above in baptism, and then we get what would we say some kingship language about this one who comes from above, Jesus. It's not just that he comes from above, but that he is above all. His rulership and authority is complete. In contrast, he was of the earth, meaning Adam, right? The man made of the dust of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, which is exactly what he said to Nicodemus. I right. speak to you in an earthly way. How can you expect to, to receive heavenly things? Um, he who comes from heaven is above all. There it is again. He has all authority. Uh, and he bears witness to what he has seen, meaning the heavenly things, which we have not seen and heard Yet no one receives his testimony. Now that's, I, I think, a commentary on Nicodemus a bit, but on the broader commentary from John chapter 1. Sure, John chapter 1 plus the quandary of John the baptizer's own disciples. Right. Right? Yeah. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. And of course, we talk about the seal of baptism. And so we're still strongly in baptismal language here. And the seal makes it possible for us to say God is true. So we don't figure out that God is true and then get the seal. We get the seal which sets us to know that God is true. I think that's very important. Well, I wonder who the, who the one is who has received the testimony. Is it John the Baptist? Well, I whoever receives. And so I think he's talking more broadly about all of those fleeing to Jesus and his baptism. Let's come back to that because there's some interesting stuff there. Yeah. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So there's that speaking again and that wanting to hear him. For he gives the spirit 
without measure. And, and that's that connection of the word and the spirit is critical because so often we get confused about where the spirit comes from. Like it's just floating around and we just have to find the, the right outlet to plug into him. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. There's that authority of God again. We're also getting a little bit of that for God so loved the world language uh, in a slightly different way. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And there's that interesting contrast. That's not what you would expect. Whoever believes in the son of God has eternal life. Whoever you would expect does not believe in the son shall not see life, but he says do not obey. And that's a really intriguing contrast. And it helps us maybe understand the difference between what is meant by obedience here. And it really comes down to those last two verses where they, as you pointed out, Pastor Oakry, they they sound a lot like John 3.16 and following, which we established last time, was most likely John breaking into the narrative after Jesus finished speaking, even though many times 3.16 and following are in red letters. Those two verses are the link because they sound a lot like the previous time when John did this. Agreed. I think it's very interesting what is said here uh, in verse 32. That which he has seen and heard, this he bears witness to, that in particular. So this is referring to the one who comes down from heaven. And I actually think that he's talking about a notion of God. And, and, and I don't want to say, uh, I don't, I don't want to, what he's talking about is the way God really is, right? And the way God really is, is that he's not a, an ogre up in heaven waving his finger back and forth saying, you go to hell, you go to hell, you go to hell. The sun emanates out of the love of God and takes flesh out of God's pity and mercy, out of the Father's pity and mercy. So to, to see the sun is to get a, a glimpse, like through a window, into the heart of God the Father. God doesn't do an about face here in Christ. This is the lie of Gerhard Ferdi that God doesn't about face in Christ. Like he's angry until Christ comes along and then he's happy. That's not, that's not the case at all. God is all, has always been merciful. He's always wanted to save. The problem has always been that human beings can't reckon with a God like that because of the opinio legis, because of their idea that because I relate to you on this earth, according to the law, I must relate to God in heaven, according to the law. This is really pretty huge that, that Jesus himself becomes a, like the peephole in the door through which you actually get to understand how God is. Which is why the language of, of the hidden God is so important. Uh, God cannot fully reveal himself to us. And scripture makes that very clear. Uh, Moses had to be put in the crack and see his backside. That's because the opinion legis made it impossible for him to interact with him. And, but even if you go back to the garden, I think it is so important that the promise was made almost a reflection, right? He doesn't speak directly to Adam and Eve and promise them the Savior. He says to the serpent so that Adam and Eve can hear it that this is happening. And already that's the hiddenness of God, right? He's like, if I look at you before you hear this promise, you're, you're ashes. But I'm going to talk to the person who is ashes first. And I'm going to let you hear something incredible. I'm going to let I'm going to reveal something hidden to you, and that's that I am going to 
fix this problem. And and that is a complete abolishment of the about-faceness, right? Mm-hmm. The promise was there from the very beginning, and, and he spared Adam and Eve from the very beginning from uh, the worst of their sin, in as much as he did not damn them utterly and retreat from creation completely. And I think to your point, Pastor Oakry, I was just reading this past week about how right after the promise of the seed crushing the serpent's head, as well as all of the curses for the consequence of sin, you've got Adam naming Eve. It's like he believes the promise. Calling her life. Right. Right. Because from her is going to bring about the Messiah. He took comfort in the promise. He believed the promise. So much so that he didn't call her, you know, some derogatory name. Death. (laughs) Right. He names her Eve, the mother of all the living. Since we're on this, look at all of the Trinitarian stuff in this little passage. You've got the Father. You've got the one who descends from heaven. And you've got the Spirit. Again, in a richly baptismal context, just talk about the weight of verse 33. He who receives the witness. Who is that? It's the one who is baptized. Yes? Amen. Yes, the seal is set upon him. In other words, if you want to think about this, the baptized person is the outcome of God's great love and mercy. And the very fact that people are being baptized is the seal that God is alethes, that God is true. True to what? True to his promises to save. The main seal I think about in the gospel is the seal that Pontius Pilate put into the tomb. He tried to to seal by his human authority Jesus into death. And Jesus said, that's not going to work. I've got a better seal. Uh, I have a bigger promise. And your authority ends uh, precisely here. And, of course, that seal gets burst apart by Christ coming out and keeping his promise. His seal um, is is affirmed utterly in his resurrection. And so I think that's a... I, I never thought about the seal of Pontius Pilate in that way. It was just kind of like a practical thing. But no, this this sealing language is really important. And no human seal can hinder the promises of God. Not that this makes any difference here, but uh, wasn't it Judah who gave Tamar his seal? <laughs> Through the line of Judah comes the Messiah. Yeah. Interesting. And there's also, I was just going to go get my concordance. There's a place where, where Jesus himself is the one sealed by the Father. The sealing language, it, again, it's not a prominent theme in Scripture, but it does come up. Uh, and I'm looking at Jeremiah 32. And this is, you know, Jeremiah was the great um, visual aid guy, the prophet of the visual aid. And he, he went through the ringer. But one of the, the less onerous things he had to do was buy a deed for some land. And in, in 32, he buys a deed for, for some land, uh, even though uh, Judah is consigned to destruction by Babylon. And so we read in 32, uh, 9, And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hemael, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. 
Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. So there was a sealed one and an open one. He takes them, he gives them to uh, Baruch, his secretary, uh, to seal them away in an earthen jar. But the, the important thing here is this promise. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of the house of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought in this land. And I think that's important. The seal put on us is similarly with Christ. Jesus knew he had sealed the love of God on him in his baptism so that even in his crucifixion, even in, even when God forsook him, he knew that that could not last because God had put a promise on him. And I think that's important. And, and this comes to light in that us viewing things in that eternal way. What is happening now does not undermine the promises of God put on us in our baptism. What is sealed is sealed doesn't mean that we won't have some twists and turns in the road. It doesn't mean we won't go into the valley of the shadow of death. But that that cannot be the end of our story. Because God says it isn't. It's sealed. And that's irrevocable. No, yeah, and no different from when Cain said, My punishment is too great, and the Lord put a mark upon Cain. God sealed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he, he said, but that's not good enough, so I'm going to go build some walls around me. He didn't trust the promise of God. I mean, right. that's the interesting thing yeah, about Cain. Yeah. Let us, as the baptized children of God, trust that promise, no matter what. All right, so we're probably coming to the end here of chapter 3 and closing out this roundtable discussion. But I was thinking when I read 14, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure and it made me think of a well like it it the water just keeps coming out and then i'll be doggone what do you get in the very next chapter yep a well yep so that, I, I love that and this is maybe even part of the tessellated approach that we talked about right that's the, earlier, exactly right? this like, is the the mosaic here's a, here's here's a, a little, piece here's a little hook yep. and uh, yep. now we're going to talk about wells right yeah right which again points us to water indeed indeed Indeed. Well, that wraps this discussion up of John chapter 3. We will continue with John chapter 4 next time. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. I, I I love Jude and Tamara. We don't teach our kids that enough because no. because it's awkward. It's, well, it's dirty. Yeah, but I love it because he's like, there will be death for this. This is an outrage. And Burn then she her. says, and then she's like, well, let me just show you who it was so you can track him down. He's like, and he's like, uh, yes, uh, okay. yes, show me who it is and we will find him. Right. And he's like, well, it's the person who owned these things. And he was like, you know, maybe I was being a little harsh. <laughs>